0: It's only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard sea, But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me It is only a canvas sky Sailing over a muslin tree But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me oh, out your love It's a honky-tonk parade oh, out your love
1: We made mention at the top of the program about uh, the work of Robert Lustig, M.D. We've mentioned his work previously on this program. He is the man who's taking on sugar and the sugar industry. He actually wrote a book about all this in 2012 titled Fat Chance, at which time he warned that if we don't halt the obesity epidemic, we'll all be so fat we'll have to ride around little scooters like a Walmart. As mentioned on this program uh, previously, uh, the sugar industry back in the 1970s decided to go on the offensive and using the same techniques pioneered by Big Tobacco spread a lot of doubt about the fact that their product could do harm to the health. Fats, what we had to steer clear of, fat and cholesterol, and that's kind of been the I'd say the marching orders medicine has largely followed ever since, but a lot of people have noted that back in the 1970s, uh, several Harvard researchers got on the payroll of big sugar, and their work helped muddy the scientific waters enough to keep dietary sugar guidelines vague. The Week magazine noted in its excellent briefing section last April that consumption of added sugars soared 30% between 1977 and 2010, and notes that many, many nutritionists say that it's no coincidence that obesity rates more than doubled over that same period. Just to do a little sideline chat about sugar, I was unaware of the fact that 80% of supermarket foods contain added sugar. Uh, whole wheat bread can have a teaspoon of sugar per slice, but the one I really did not know was that Heinz tomato ketchup contains 22.8% sugar, twice as much as Coca-Cola. Robert Lustig certainly has a way with words, and uh, his provocative position that he is staking out regarding sugar, I I have no doubt, has a great deal of truth in it. Uh, Critics of him have noted, however, that he makes some factual errors, at least he did in that that video that's now been seen by 7 million people, wherein he um, referred to sugar as poison and evil back in 2007. He makes a provocative case on that YouTube video. If you've never seen it, dear listener, you might want to check it out. We're certainly intrigued by the fact that he's now going a step further with his book, The Hacking of the American Mind, subtitled, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Brains. I've not yet finished this book, but um, I'm intrigued by what I've read so far, and I think I'll just quote from the introduction, wherein he says that in this book, I'm going to develop separate and parallel scientific, cultural, historic, economic, and social arguments that our minds have been hacked. I will also demonstrate that this hack, this systematic confusion and conflation of the concepts and definitions of pleasure and happiness, has been inserted into the limbic system, the emotional part of our brains, thereby precipitating a slow-motion crash of substantial percentage, somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of individuals, and exacting a severe detrimental impact on our whole society. Wow. I also want to quote one little item I have gleaned from this book. Uh, which we have talked about previously on this program, but there's some details here I was unaware of. The Coca-Cola Company does not like to admit that the coca part of the name of coca-cola actually refers to cocaine, but of course it does. If you travel to South America, and I hope you do, dear listener, to visit the Andes Republics of Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, you will no doubt be served coca tea, which is a refreshing beverage and has a waking up effect pretty much analogous to caffeine, but perhaps less toxic. As he talks about how addictions are developed in people and how they are transferred from one substance to another, Lustig had the following to say. A perfect example of addiction transfer with long-lasting effects for the entire world was John Pemberton. He was an Atlanta pharmacist, and in 1886, he invented the formula for a very special and unique carbonated beverage. On May 29th of that year, Pemberton placed the first advertisement in the Atlantic Journal for his soft drink, which would, from that day forward, be known as Coca-Cola. The story of Pemberton and Coke is widely known, the stuff of urban legends. Back then, carbonation was a big deal, requiring high-pressure jets to force enough carbon dioxide into solution. There was no method for reinforcing standard glass bottles, so carbonation had to be done in pharmacies with special equipment equipment and drunk on site. This became known as the soda fountain. Thus, Coca-Cola was originally sold only in pharmacies. But there was another reason as well. What is not widely known is that Pemberton was a morphine addict after being wounded in the Civil War. The reason he developed his sacred formula was a long-standing attempt to wean himself off his addiction. But his addiction was ruining his profits, his business, and his life. He spent the next 21 years trying to come up with an opium-free painkiller. He went through several iterations without success. Ultimately, he developed a concoction that included cocaine, alcohol, caffeine, and sugar. Four separate hedonistic substances, four somewhat weaker dopamine reward system drugs to take the place of one very strong one. Pemberton mixed the four with carbonated water, thought to have its own hedonistic properties, but due to the temperance movements that overtook the South in the late 1800s, mainly due to Civil War veterans developing alcoholism, he removed the alcohol and voila. However, in 1888, Pemberton sold the formula and the rights to Atlanta businessman Asa Candler for a mere $2,500, and Candler proceeded to turn Coca-Cola into the most famous brand in the world. Why so cheap, you ask? Well, because Pemberton needed the money. Bad. You can guess why. He was sick, addicted, and penniless. He never did beat his morphine addiction, and he died the same year at age 57. Not surprisingly, if you go to the Coca-Cola Museum in Atlanta, this sordid tale is nowhere to be found. He goes on to note that in 1903, the federal government required the removal of cocaine for public sale, leaving only caffeine and sugar. Were these two substances alone enough to maintain the hook? Says Lustig, of course. Why do you think? Why do you think Starbucks sells Frappuccinos? Candler saw his Coca-Cola placed into pharmacy soda fountains all over the country. It is now available in 208 out of the 209 countries of the world. Only North Korea is coke Myanmar capitulated in 2012 and Cuba in 2015. It is by far the world's most recognized brand. He goes on to note that yes, you can get a lot with just caffeine and sugar. How many beverages out there that we all drink today contain both these ingredients? Lustig says that sugar and caffeine are diet staples for much of the world today. Coffee is the second most important commodity behind petroleum. Sugar is fourth. Think about that a minute. Number one traded commodity in the world is petroleum. And coming in number two is coffee. We hope we will be able to obtain Dr. Lustig for future discussions on this program. I got my copy of The Economist magazine, which uh, does now arrive on a weekly basis. Noted the cover story was The Case for Taxing Death. And uh, my first reaction was to imagine The Economist has gone nuts. And after reading their editorial, I'm deepening my doubts. The magazine's taking the position that uh, there's some value in preventing the wealthy from passing on uh, their vast collections of their vast collection of power slash money to descendants. Liberals from John Stuart Mill to Theodore Roosevelt thought that this whole idea of inherited wealth needed correcting. Roosevelt warned that letting huge fortunes pass along generations was a great and genuine detriment to the community at large. The magazine notes that half of Europe's billionaires inherited their wealth, and their number seems to be rising. The editorial does go on to note that in the century since Roosevelt's Sweden and other high taxers discovered that if a government imposes a steep enough duty, the rich will find ways to avoid it. The trusts they create as a result can last even longer than the three generations it takes for family fortunes to go from clogs to clogs. I've been puzzled by this fact that people think that you can create an inheritance tax, a death tax, and keep people from passing on, inherit, passing on their wealth to subsequent generations. But frankly, it just doesn't work that way. It is a fact that in America, our inheritance tax hit people that owned several million dollars worth of business, property, or other forms of accrued value. It did not affect the Donald Trumps, George Steinbrenners, Mellons, Rockefellers, and duponts of the world legal arrangements are made with the truly wealthy that it those who would collect an inheritance tax just never see their wealth that's just the facts of the matter and if you don't believe me on this you should check out a documentary available on netflix on netflix and i presume other places relating to the recent scandal of the panama papers The wealthy of the world are avoiding trillions, trillions of dollars worth of taxes by setting up shell corporations in places like the Cayman Islands and Panama and the British Virgin Islands that simply keeps their fortunes away from the prying eyes of tax collectors. They're very good at this. And if our politicians around the world were to get serious about increasing tax revenues from such fabulously wealthy individuals... This is where you start. Might one expect any serious efforts to do this in the near future? Well, we would say probably not. Speaking of tax reform, there's a lot going on right now in Congress and between the Trump administration and the Senate and the House about how we're going to reform the tax structure of America. Uh, In a rather astounding move, it appears they're going to get rid of the mortgage deduction, which might do something to clip the wings of um, the real estate industry in this country. As far as I know, America is the only nation on earth that has a mortgage deduction. And I don't know enough about this right now to say anything of an intelligent or even not very intelligent nature, so I'm just going to let it go. But I do want to make some comment by way of follow up on our discussion of the Yimby people in the Bay Area being financed by the tech industries and the real estate developers to build like crazy everywhere, in spite of the fact that the Bay Area is already overcrowded and running out of resources. We've made note on this program frequently over the years of the fact that California is looking pretty full. Our problems with smog, congestion, and lack of water, you'd think would indicate that we might want to consider slowing down development. But no, no, that's not even something people are talking about. These YIMBY people are saying, oh, it's not that we're bringing all these high-tech people to the Bay Area. That's got nothing to do with why prices of, for, of housing are out of sight. Well, um, uh, wrong. That That is the major reason why. And you know what? I'm not going to whip this, this horse here of, uh, of California being overdeveloped right now. But I do want to take about two or three minutes and, and talk about how Florida, which so impressed me when I visited there a few months ago with how crazily overdeveloped it seems to be, well, it was described in, in a wonderful article that appeared in Politico magazine. It was reprinted in the week. I think it bears some quoting from. The article was about Cape Coral, Florida. And noted that it was built on a swamp by hucksters and could be wiped off the map by a powerful storm. But journalist Michael Grinwald wrote about how it is also the fastest growing city in the United States. Apparently back in late 1950s, Man named Leonard Rosen and his brother bought up some land, some mangrove swamp land and a palmetto scrub, known as Redfish Point down in Florida, which they rebranded as Cape Coral. They had some money to invest, they'd gotten rich selling an anti baldness tonic made from lanolin. They had some of America's first infomercials featuring the memorable tagline, Have you ever seen a bald sheep? Anyway, they went down and dug out 400 miles worth of canals in the area, making uh, Coral Gables the most canaled city of any on earth. Its population has grown from 200 in 1960 to 180,000 today, and the region is the fastest growing in Florida, and in five out of the last 13 years, the fastest growing in the nation. They did this by producing the idea, the illusion all along, that there was a community for potential residents in the area, despite the fact that as they started selling lots, there were no supermarkets, no department stores, no theaters, and in fact, no means of bringing in fresh water. To this day, unlike nearby smaller but better known neighbors like Fort Myers and Naples, Cape Coral, Florida has no colleges no arenas, no significant corporate offices, no real tourist destinations, only one luxury hotel, a downtown with no focal point, and hardly any commercial tax base. It also doesn't have any good beaches. The article noted the Rosens also left a brutal environmental legacy that still haunts Cape Coral. They tore down most of the coastal mangroves that had provided natural storm protection, And uh, as well as vital spawning and feeding grounds for its fisheries. They drained and paved wetlands that once absorbed the area's floodwaters and also recharged its aquifers so that local wells ran dry from the start, and the city now mines its drinking water from a finite supply 800 feet underground. It should also be noted that if Coral Gables takes a direct hit from a hurricane, it will be wiped out. And yet, there's a triumph of hucksterism over good sense described in the piece as the least natural, worst planned, craziest growing piece of an unnatural, badly planned, crazy growing state. Much of the town is just a few feet above sea level. And uh, in a recent mandatory evacuation order during Hurricane Irma, the forecast then called for as much as 15 feet of storm surge. Um, Well, the Red Cross only opened two shelters down in the town because it, as, as a matter of policy, doesn't open shelters in vulnerable flood zones. Florida, at the end of World War II, was the 27th most populous state. It's now third. Its continuing development is an ecological catastrophe in the making, and you might make the same case for California. Florida is just a little bit ahead of us in this. And yes, you can bet we'll be bitching about this more in the future. You know, we hate to do a program that omits the good, the bad, and the ugly, so let's take a detour into that. According to the Week magazine, it was a good news last week for fake news from Fox News, which tweeted a link to the following story with the line, you be the judge. The story from the internet is a claim that a photo from the 1972 Apollo 17 mission shows the reflection in an astronaut's visor of a stagehand standing on the moon, quote-unquote, without a spacesuit. If any of you waste any time investigating the story, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We don't have the time ourselves. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for students. Last week, at least students at New York's Brooklyn College who say they want the city police to stop using the university's restrooms. College officials asked police to confine their rest stops to a single bathroom on the edge of campus. But some students want a total ban, said one activist. Seeing cops makes safe spaces feel less safe. Oh, and we have to apologize for broadcasting that without giving you a trigger warning. And it was an ugly week last week for, I think, all of us with the following news. TV stations are about to track you and sell targeted ads, just like Google and Facebook, according to Brian Fung in the Washington Post. The FCC last week approved rules paving the way for what the industry calls next-gen TV, which, among other things, will enable television broadcasters to collect data about your reviewing habits and sell targeted ads supporters of next gen tv contend that changes will help networks compete in a world of internet media but privacy advocates call the development a setback for consumers that will accelerate the erosion of consumer privacy as the tv industry becomes more consolidated and uh, despite our concern over artificial intelligence and let's add two final items that are both i think good and bad regarding artificial intelligence The good one is that we can probably add diagnosing dangerous lung diseases to the growing list of things that AI can evidently do better than humans. Researchers at Stanford University have developed a neural network that can beat radiologists at spotting pneumonia on chest X-rays. When the network's algorithm was expanded, it also proved better than doctors in identifying 13 other diseases. This does put radiologists and other physicians on notice. The ability of artificial intelligence to assess lots of different comparisons, more than seemingly the human brain can do, well, there'll be an upside to that, and already is. On the other hand, concern over AI and what robots may do to us in the future has Max Tegemart, a Swedish scientist, setting up the Future of Life Institute, which aims to prevent AI from destroying civilization. Companies like Google, Facebook, and IBM are already developing a form of silicon mind that is creative as the human brain, but faster, more focused, and entirely alien in its thought processes. The coming AI revolution could end poverty and cure cancer, at least so the advocates say, or it could cause mass unemployment and see the human race enslaved by machines. Tegmark says most people are in denial that anything will change, but you can't have this kind of technology without changing what it means to be human. Tegmark notes that computers will soon be able to create a fake video of a public figure like President Trump that would be indistinguishable from a real video. AI could destroy a person's reputation with fake sex tapes or false confessions. He added, you should never underestimate how easy it will be for intelligent machines to trick us. And uh, speaking of AI, as we are, let's just do a little, another side trip into uh, a briefing from the week. This one was from November 24th, last week's edition. And it was titled, When Your Face Reveals Everything. notes how facial recognition technology could revolutionize everyday life, but it asks at what cost. They explain that we now have the technology to create a distinctive digital face print, much like a fingerprint. Law law enforcement agencies have had faces on file for decades. Their databases provide them with the identified person's name, age, address, and criminal history. But facial recognition is increasingly being used by commercial firms, too. Facebook's system for tagging a photo, identifying who is in the picture, is now as accurate as users doing it themselves. Apple's new iPhone can be unlocked when its owner simply looks at it. As the technology becomes more widespread, there's growing fears that it will erode privacy and be misused by bad actors. Kelly Gates, author of Our Biometric Future, says we need to ask ourselves whether a world of ubiquitous automated identification is really one we want to build. Under the question of who uses this technology, it's noted that facial recognition is most common in China, where people can use it to pay for a coffee visit tourist attractions, and even withdraw cash from ATMs. Several Chinese cities use face-scanning cameras to shame jaywalkers by flashing their names and photographs on public display boards. But it notes the West isn't lagging too far behind. In Europe, high-end hotels and retailers use facial recognition cameras to identify VIPs and celebrities as they enter in order to give them preferential treatment. Several U.S. airlines are looking to replace boarding passes with face scanners. Department stores are using facial recognition to monitor how customers react to certain product displays. And these developments are only the tip of the iceberg. And already I'm getting chills and don't want to even go into the rest of the iceberg. So we'll put that on ice for the moment. You know, I think every show needs at least some comedy relief. And I think the following item might do for today. Reportedly... Brazilian police arrested a horse for kicking a car and put the animal in jail. The horse, named Facedo was startled by a car as it passed and it kicked it, causing damage. Police took the horse into custody and locked him up for 24 hours until his owner, William Dos Santos, agreed to pay for the vehicle damage. Said Dos Santos, I found my horse in a jail cell as if he were a common criminal. The Brazilian police said they had launched an investigation into the incident. The police chief evidently admitted it is not normal to arrest a horse. All right, and in the four minutes we have left, I, I want to just lighten the mood by talking about a really memorable, fun thing that happened back in 1989. And I'm reminded of this by a PBS documentary on uh, the Voyager spacecraft. At the end of it, they talked about the celebratory mood at. JPL in 1989, when the mission completed its uh, grand slam tour, as it were, after visiting Jupiter, then Saturn, then Uranus, and finally Neptune. And, and by the way, to to make a pass at Neptune's large and interesting moon Triton, they had to spend the spa- They had to send the spacecraft skimming right over the cloud tops of Neptune. They had to do it with great Precision because if they didn't hit the right sweet spot, it wasn't going to bend the orbit in the way it needed to visit the moon Triton. And if they dipped too low, it was going to crash into Neptune itself. But doggone it, it was one smashing success, and everybody was pretty happy about it. Now, to reset the stage for this event, wherein I was able to meet Clyde Tombaugh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, I took it upon myself to travel down to, to Planet Fest and see if I couldn't participate in some manner. The manner I thought I might be able to use was the fact that I had created a model of the solar system with all of the planets to scale. I packed it up, drove it down to Pasadena for this event, and asked Lou Friedman of the Planetary Society if he might be interested in having it displayed. He said, show me what you got. After looking at it, he turned to one of his minions and said, give him a table. So it was, I found myself as a planetary artist ensconced next to the makers of the Cassini space probe, Martin Marietta, I think it was, or a host of other aerospace companies, sort of hoping that we might get invited to the party that was going to take place at JPL. And that is where my social facilitator, friend Donald Rose, entered the equation. He was standing next to me as some people from JPL uh, came by, and he started engaging them in conversation. And wouldn't you know it, he got us invited into JPL for the big event. You remember this, Don?
2: I do remember Doug. It was... One of my favorite memories of all time. I'm sure you remember it well, too. Uh, I don't
1: remember how we got into JPL. I remember this woman said she'd get us in, and somehow there was a, a pass or something. It was some code word. I don't know. We got through the gate.
2: Yeah, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, we, we, we both wanted to go quite badly,
1: and I had a feeling that if we talked to the right person, we would get in, and indeed we did. Well, the right person liked the, the planetary models. And, said, and we said, geez, we'd sure love to go. And she said, all right, all right. I'll arrange this. God bless her. I don't remember. I don't remember what her name was, but God bless her.
2: Yeah, if you're out there, call us. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, uh, Doug, you remember? You know, my favorite memory, and maybe yours too, was when Carl Sagan, after giving all the speeches were done, and he said, "And now, I'd like to bring out someone very special." Uh, you know, and he was basically introducing this gentleman, and we no, nobody knew for sure who it was, but I think we all had a feeling it might be. And sure enough, we heard the chords to Johnny B. Good coming
1: out of the back of the stage and then we all knew it had to be chuck Berry. and chuck came strutting right down the stairway guitar in hand and people just
2: went nuts that i remember very well in fact you can still see the video it's out there online
1: well i'm, I'm sad to say that in in this documentary we were viewing the other night uh which showed that exact party and that exact entrance by chuck Berry, that we were somewhere in the crowd but unfortunately not visible
2: Yes, not visible maybe on tape, but certainly in our memories forever it'll be visible. And I just, you know, one of the great memories of all time, and what a fitting way to end an incredible mission that night. That was really the, the culmination of the mission, wasn't
1: it, Dan? It was, and, you know, we probably should bring the, uh, the director of that entire successful endeavor, uh, Ed Stone, on this program. We talked about doing that years ago, and Ed's still around, and we ought to give it a shot.
2: Indeed. Uh, I, I think that would be a perfect uh, guest to have on. I'm sure he would love to talk about Voyager, uh, given that this year is the 40th anniversary of the launch of that mission.
1: All right. Well, Don, thanks for chipping in. And uh, that's about it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And uh, well, we may bring on one of these offers on next week's show. I hope so. But even if not, we think it'll still be worth your while. So do tune in.
2: And if there are any aliens listening, please send more Chuck Berry.
0: It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. C'est la vie, said the old folks, it goes to show you never can tell. Furnished off an apartment with a two-room robot sale The Coolerator was crammed with TV dinners and ginger ale But when Pierre found work, the little money coming worked out well C'est la vie, said the old folks, culture show you never can tell